Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is music business writer Zach O'Malley Greenberg. But first of all, we almost had the first concert based on social distancing at Temple Live at Fort Smith, Arkansas, with Travis McCready. So this is a venue that's about 1,100 people, but they're going to pare it down to 229. And they were really taking a lot of precautions. One-way walkways, 10 per restroom, restricted fan pods of 12 that were six feet away from another fan pod. Everybody had to wear a mask, temperature checks before you enter the building, prepackaged beverages. They even went as far as disinfecting mist via fog sprayers. So this sounded like it was going to work, and certainly the venue jumped through hoops to make it happen. However, the governor shut it down, saying it was outside the state's pandemic directive. So they didn't give them a permit. Turns out that the venue was going to go ahead anyway, and that forced the governor to revoke their liquor license, which did shut it down. So we didn't see that first social distance concert yet. It looks like it might be coming, though. The Event Safety Alliance, which is pretty big, actually. It's been going on for a long time. They just released a 29-page reopening guide. And this document is for every venue that basically gives them guidance on how they should open their venues and what they should do in order to keep everything clean and disinfected. Now, at Temple Live, it looks like they actually went through most of that, but they probably jumped the gun on the time period of when everybody felt it was a good time to happen. Tickets were being sold by Ticketmaster. There were no reports on how many tickets were actually sold. That being said, there's a lot of pent-up demand to go out and see live music, and there's a lot of people that just want to get out of the house. So expect this to happen pretty soon, if not by the time you listen to this podcast. <laughs> If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free dash resources. <laughs> Now, I'm sure you've seen these really slick quarantine band performances. You've seen artists on Jimmy Fallon and The Late Late Show. You've seen Blue Oyster Cult and Joan Jett and Sting and Dua Lipa and all sorts of different artists that are out there doing these concerts with their band. And you probably scratch your head and thought, how are they doing that? And I did too. I started to look at the various apps that are available. Jam Kazam and Acapella are a couple of them. But still, there's lots of latency, and there's no way to really pull it off the way you're seeing it on television. And there's a good reason. That's because there's a lot of post-production involved. None of that is really live. You probably figure this out, but just in case you didn't, what everybody does is they're either playing to a click track or a guide track. And of course, they may be taking a phone video and crudely recording it live, but it's later being put together by a video editor so it all comes out really slick looking and sounding. Obviously, the more people you have involved, the more difficult this is going to be and the more time it's going to take. But it is being done. It is kind of refreshing the fact that so much is raw and live. 
And I think we all like that when it's all said and done. There comes a point in time where you go, oh, I think I'd like it to be slicker, but now is a good time for all this. So give it a try yourself. Just remember that it's going to take a little more work and a little more time than you might have expected. My guest today is Zach O'Malley Greenberg, who's a senior editor of media and entertainment at Forbes and author of four excellent music-oriented business books. His latest, A-List Angels, is how a band of actors, artists, and athletes cashed in on the latest tech boom and changed the face of Silicon Valley. His previous books include Three Kings, about Diddy, Dr. Dre, and Jay-Z, and hip-hop's multi-million dollar rise, Michael Jackson Incorporated, and the Jay-Z biography, Empire State of Mind. Zach's work has also appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Vanity Fair, Vibe, Billboard, Sports Illustrated, McSweeney's in the Library of Congress. He's been a source for BBC, NPR, MTV, and 60 Minutes, and a speaker at South by Southwest, CES, TEDx, Princeton, and Harvard. During the interview, we spoke about the similarities between media business moguls, how certain entertainment celebrities got involved with tech, Zach's approach to interviewing famous people, and much more. I spoke with Zach via Zoom from his home in New York City. You started writing really early, and I guess that's because your parents were writers, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, in a funny way, I actually tried to avoid writing because my parents were writers. As long as, long as I could, uh, I, I really wanted to try to do something completely different. And my initial dream was to be a Major League Baseball general manager, um, but uh, I I fell into to writing pretty early. Um, I was actually age 14 when I published my first story, which was a video game review for Boys Life magazine, which for a while I thought was the coolest job anybody could ever have. And, uh, you know, was receiving the Sega Dreamcast many weeks ahead of its launch and getting to write about it and actually getting paid. So, um, you know, it was, uh, it was an exciting time, but that, that kind of started me on the path, the writing path. And I, I never really looked back. I saw you were a baseball reporter at Yale, so that leads me to my next question. Obviously, you're a baseball fan. Mets or Yankees? Uh, Yankees. Yankees all the way. But, man, I, I, I would always, I've always been the kind of guy who would go to, to any baseball game, uh, any team. I'd watch any, any MLB game that's on. And right about now, I, I would settle for, uh, for a Little League game. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, pretty baseball starved. So. Yeah, I'm the same way. Now you're writing about a very interesting part of the music business. First of all, how did you get into writing about music and business? Because that seems to be off the path for you somehow. Yeah, it, um, you know, it was uh, until, you know, I'd say the music and business thing came together in, in pieces. And the first piece was when I was at, school uh, writing for the Yale Daily News about the baseball team and so forth, I saw a letter on the bulletin board and it said, interns wanted Forbes magazine. Uh, And in fact, the editorial council had been an editor at my college paper in the past. And so, you know, a a bunch of us applied. I ended up getting an internship summer 2005, really enjoyed it, Uh, went summer 2006. And I found that sort of the same mechanisms that um, interested me about baseball and baseball statistics with, you know, I'd been playing fantasy baseball since I was eight years old. Um, a lot of them applied in the stock market and 
you know, you, the idea is to look for value, right? You could find, um, by leafing through, uh, any number of, you know, uh, books, uh, you could figure out some indicators that would tell you that a baseball player would do better, um, you know, in, in the coming year than he did in the past. And similarly, um, back then, you know, you, I guess it was the newspaper mainly you, you'd look through and you could look at the PE ratios of stocks and so forth. And, um, although the, the categories were different and the metrics were different, it was sort of the same mechanism. So, you know, I kind of took to it and I started writing stock picks for Forbes, uh, as I guess a 19 or 20 year old where I'd call up analysts on wall street and, and sort of pick their brains about a stock and develop a thesis and, and get it published in the magazine. And those started doing pretty well. And, one thing led to another and, and Forbes brought me on full time when I graduated. So the second piece of the, the music and business thing came again, sort of by chance. I was sitting in a cubicle shortly after I'd started and an editor walked in and she said, Hey, would you like to help me put together the first ever list of the top earning rappers in the world? And I said, of course, um, I'd always loved hip hop, grew up on it in New York and, uh, one thing led to another, and, and pretty soon I had written a story about how Tupac was making more money dead than all but five living rappers. And then the, the, we put out a you know a story in the magazine to that effect, and there was a little sidebar that said Hip Hop Cash Kings, and it listed Jay-Z, Diddy, and Dr. Dre as uh, one, two, and three, I believe, in that order. I think they were making $20 million a year or something like that in those days. And this is 2007. And... Um, you know, it was, I thought it was a fun story and went off to write my next thing. It was a general assignment kind of gig in those days. And uh, I found myself driving around the desert in New Mexico um, on a story about nanotechnology uh, to meet with some professor at Sandia Labs. And on the radio comes Forbes, one, two, three. I get money. I get money. And, uh, and lo and behold, Jay-Z, Diddy, and 50 Cent had put out a song, the Billion Dollar Remix. Uh, about being included on this Forbes um, list. And I got back to New York and everybody was sort of like, oh man, business journalism has never been so cool. <laughs> so uh, the, around that time, the editor who I had been working with left and she said, you should really make this your thing. So I did. And I, I turned the hip hop list into an annual thing um, and kind of expanded it into, you know, full time serious coverage of the business not only of hip hop, but of music and, um, you know, and then went on to, to more broadly work on our, our media entertainment and entertainment coverage, uh, from there. So you've written, well, four books now. I haven't read the first couple, but what I found in looking at them was that you take a different approach to how these media moguls, music media moguls, are actually expanding their business. You're looking at it from a different way where most people will look at it mostly coming from the music side. You look at it coming from the business side. For sure. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a thing that a dear friend of mine said who, who's a, who runs a startup and he said, you know, all musicians are startups in a way. He's, he's also a musician. And I think that's really apt because, you know, if you look at whether you're a musician, whether you're an entrepreneur, you know, putting together a, a company, you have to make a lot of the same decisions. You have to figure out when to quit your day job. Um, you have to figure out, you know, if you're not independently wealthy, how, how are you going to fund your, your project, right? Whether it's, you know, hiring more people to, 
you know, to code your, your website or your app or whatever, or whether it's, you know, hiring a team to, to run your tour. Um, and, uh, you know, how are you going to scale your business? How are you going to reach your customers? And I think that that's been sort of one of my guiding principles in, in writing these books is, you know, how can, how can the stories of people like Jay-Z, who I wrote my first book about, uh, how can the stories of, of some of the entrepreneurs I chronicle in my latest book, A-List Angels, uh, from Ashton Kutcher to Shaquille O'Neal, how can they kind of inform, um, you know, uh, people who are, who are doing business and people who are, who are on the creative side, um, you know, in, in the same way. Uh, and, and, you know, and also how can it be fun? How can it be a great story that'll, that'll be entertaining to read? Have you noticed a common characteristic of all of the people that you wrote about? There are a few, you know, I'd say that, you know, probably like a cluster, um, you know, less than a, everybody has all of these things, but, but a few of the things that pop up a lot are, uh, one is the ability to ask questions, um, may seem really basic, but Ashton Kutcher, who, who was sort of the main character of this latest book, I interviewed him for a Forbes cover story uh, several years ago. And he said, you know, he, when he's going to invest in startups, cause that's his, his big thing. Now he's got, uh, stakes and everything from Uber and Airbnb, like Uber's already public, but he was able to get into a lot of these great startups before long before they went public. And, and what he would do is he would, he would say, I want to, I don't mind sounding like the dumbest guy in the room. Um, I just want to ask every, every question, uh, you know, if I don't understand the jargon, I'm just going to ask, you know, uh, if I don't get the acronym, I'm just, I'm just going to ask. And I don't care if I sound stupid because I'm going to get the right answers. And, and I think that's a great lesson. You know, I think, um, a lot of people in business and in music tend to, to gloss over stuff. Um, you know, a, a lot of professionals tend to just breeze through and, um, you know, and, and, and maybe they know what they're talking about, or maybe they're just trying to, you know, sort of intimidate people with, um, with the language. But I think definitely, you know, not being afraid to ask those questions is, is super important. How did A-List Angels come about? Yeah. So it was that story really that got me thinking about it. And, um, you know, that was in 2016 that I, I, I wrote about Ashton and it, I kind of realized that, that his, journey and, and going from being an actor to being an investor in startups was something that was happening more and more throughout the entertainment business. And, you know, from, uh, actually 50 cent really being, I think one of the first to usher in the current era of stars investing in startups with his investment in vitamin water, you know, taking equity instead of endorsement when he created his formula 50, uh, you know, uh, vitamin water brand. He, um, you know, he was a great example. Ashton Kutcher, Justin Bieber uh, got a stake in Spotify very early in his career in 2016. He's another person I covered at Forbes. So I started to see this new way of leveraging fame and and really kind of the, the process of this class of um, of laborers finding a way to grab a hold of the means of production, to put it in sort of like Marxist terms, you know, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, movie stars and musicians and athletes we're all just paid a salary, you know, increasingly high salaries, but you know, not, not something where they really got a chunk of, of the things that they created. And as time went on, really, it wasn't until the past decade or two um, that you started to see masses of, of, of these creators, you know, really kind of wake up to that notion and find a way 
um, to get stakes, not only you know, ownership, not only in the things that they created, but it, you know, other companies as well and to sort of leverage that fame um, to get stakes in, in the hottest startups in, in this, in this uh, new tech economy. It's not only about Ashton Kusher, it's about lots of other music celebrities. How, how many did you cover in the book? Yeah, I focused on a handful of folks. So Ashton Kutcher, Nas, Shaquille O'Neal, Sophia Bush, um, you know, were some of the the uh, names up top. And then uh, behind the scenes characters like Guy Osiri and Troy Carter were a couple who I talked to pretty extensively. And, you know, by talking to them, you really kind of get to understand, um, you know, being at, at that perch of a manager, um, th- there's over the past 10 years or so really been this incredible opportunity of deal flow and, and, and people will, you know, come to you and say, Hey, you know, I've got this new startup. Um, you know, would your client like to invest? Uh, and in many cases, the client invests and in many cases, the manager invests too. And in fact, Gaio Siri now has, um, you know, a couple of venture funds with Ashton Kutcher. So, you know, I, I think, um, seeing not only the, the big names of, you know, the, the sort of like marquee names up top, but also the behind the scenes players uh, kind of get in on this bonanza has been pretty fascinating too. Was there a favorite strategy or a favorite story? Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, I'd say for sure there was no, um, you know, one typical route, right. Uh, they ranged from Shaq telling me he invested in Google before it went public because he met some kid in a restaurant who recognized him and he was playing with this kid and the kid's dad came up and said, Hey, I'm an early investor in Google. Would you like to get into, <laughs> um, to, uh, you know, to, to something a little more, um, carefully considered where Nas, who, you know, who's never really like the business guy, especially in the context of hip hop where you have Jay Z and Dre and Diddy, these all three near billionaires. Jay Z is already a billionaire. Um, you know, Nas was sort of the one who, who hung back and focused on the music most of all. And, uh, you know, he teamed up with a bright young manager by the name of Anthony Sala, uh, who, who I talked to as well, who, who kind of said, look, you know, you have a unique opportunity to, to get in on, on some of these companies. So, um, they really kind of went about it very assiduously, you know, putting together a fund, investing in, you know, well over a hundred different companies. Um, figuring out, you know, places where Nas was uniquely suited to provide value. And then in other cases, just, uh, you know, finding ways to get in on, on companies that were objectively good where he didn't need to do anything. So, you know, I think one example where Nas brought a ton of value was with Rap Genius, now Genius, the, the lyrics site. Um, it was, you know, fledgling company run by, a bunch of, uh, you know, three Ivy league kids in a Brooklyn apartment and in comes Nas. He becomes their first, uh, verified artist, brings certain credibility to the platform, helps them, you know, deal with some of the publishing issues that come up when you're, when you're printing. They're excited. You know, I mean, not like Nas was necessarily going in and doing, you know, applying copyright law, but you know, certainly he's one who can put you in touch with the people who can help with that kind of thing. Right. Um, to, uh, you know, in general, really help, help build up a company like that. And in another case, if you look at Ring, the doorbell, virtual doorbell company, uh, Nas was a really early investor in that. There's another one that his manager 
found and, and, um, invested at a time when the company really needed money. Uh, he, you know, the, the founder happened to be a big Nas fan growing up, but he told me when Nas came in, he, he could have been, you know, p- pick any, pick any wealthy influential person name out of a hat. And he didn't really care. He just needed the money to keep the business going. And, and, um, and he did, and he did really well with it and ended up selling to Amazon for over a billion dollars. Nas didn't really have to do anything. I mean, it wasn't like he was, you know, appearing in commercials for Ring, um, but he, you know, provided some capital and, and was able to do really well on that investment. So, you know, Nas ended up having the, the best earnings year of his career. Um, in I think it was 2018 or 2019, he, he made 40-some-odd million dollars, um, you know, in, in his early 40s. Uh, you know, kind of like a late bloomer from a financial perspective, at least compared to some of his peers like Jay-Z. Um, so, you know, there, I guess there's no one way of doing it, right? Um, there, there are a lot of different paths to success for, uh, for, for, for some of these characters. I haven't read the book yet, but I've read the teaser that you have on your website. And one thing jumped out at me. What's the Lady Gaga Steve Jobs story? Yeah, so um, the phenomenon of entertainers investing in startups, I think, is, is you know part of this broader convergence between technology and entertainment that's happened over the past couple of decades. And there's a great moment where Troy Carter, who was managing Lady Gaga at the time, brings her in to see Steve Jobs, and um, she goes in and and to Apple headquarters and 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 he's he points to a table and on the table are it's like a half dozen things. It's an iPad, uh, an iPod, an iPhone, an iMac and an i something else. And, but that was it. And he, he turns to Gaga and he says, this is what we do. You know, these are our, our main products and it's all about simplicity. You have to, you have to make a half a dozen perfect things, you know, or at least as close to perfect as you can. It's about getting those half dozen things right. It's not about, you know, saturation. And I think, um, I think Gaga is an act who's, who's really kind of taken that advice to heart ever since. If you look at the number of albums, um, she's put out, uh, I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's about the same as the number of items that were on the table, you know, um, I think it's about five studio albums for her at this point. So, um, you know, but, but she'll work for years and years and years to make sure it's exactly what, what it needs to be. Uh, and sort of the coda to that chapter is that Shora takes her to to meet with um, one of the founders of Google and um, and Marissa Mayer, who was working at Google at the time. And they're all kind of bragging about how they've got this new color scheme on some part of the site, and they've A/B tested it to find to find this perfect shade of blue or green or whatever it was. And um, and Gaga kind of scoffs it. She says. Did Picasso A/B test his paintings? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there, there are a lot of moments like that in the book because it, it kind of it, it starts at the beginning of the the 20th century. Um, I mean, you know, in the first chapter anyway, it gets into some of those early, early, early days uh, of entertainment and and uh, the business of it, and, and it kind of takes you all the way through. So um, in the in the second or third chapter, there's a whole bit on this on this notion of convergence and um you know in the 90s there are a lot of kind of hilarious anecdotes of uh, uh 
Hollywood and Silicon Valley not really understanding each other, you know, even, even into the aughts, um, you know, moments where let's say, you know, funnier die, for example, was, uh, founded by Will Ferrell and a couple other Hollywood folks, but funded by Sequoia and, um, you know, a lot of venture capital money. And, you know, there's this great scene where Will Ferrell is, is being told that, you know, he doesn't have any budget to, to film his next video. They're, they're, they're like, no, take a handy cam, go out and film something. And, and, you know, Will, Will Ferrell and his partners are like, well, what about us? So we'd like to get a Van Halen song. What's the licensing budget? And there's no budget. You know, what about like hair and makeup? No budget, none, zero, like zero as in zero. And, um, you know, I think part of, part of the, the tension, um, that, that people had to figure out in those early days of this convergence was in, 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 uh, music and entertainment more broadly, you start out doing things on spec. And once you achieve success, you, you get to a place where you get nice advances and uh, sort of a mark of having made it. But when you're, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, the whole thing works in, in the way of you, you take a, you know, you, you pay yourself very little as you start your company, you build up equity and then you sell the thing and, and you make a, uh, a huge amount of money. And so, you know, the, the incentives and, and sort of like the way of getting paid is, is totally reversed. You go a few hundred miles from, from, uh, you know, Southern California to Northern California. And it's just a totally different way of, you know, not being offered anything up front, um, or by trying to be lured to do things on spec, but really that's just the way that Silicon Valley has, has always done things. And, um, you know, it wasn't really until the past decade that, that Hollywood and, and, and sort of the entertainment industry more broadly, uh, started to come around to that. What's your favorite part of the book? Um, you know, I think, um, you know, the, the Nas anecdote, the Shaq anecdote, um, you know, some of this stuff, but in toward the end of it, we get to the, the, the why we care. And, you know, obviously for people sitting at home, um, you know, especially in times like these, it's like, well, why do I care if Ashton Kutcher got to invest early in Uber and got, you know, did a hundred X his, his initial investment, you know, when, when, I mean, I can't really get tapped on the shoulder, um, you know, to, to do this, uh, myself. So the, the book gets into some of the, um, social entrepreneurship, you know, some of the stuff that, that Bono has been doing, um, with entities like the rise fund, which invests around the world and, and, um, you know, in, in sort of like micro and any kind of like small, very, very small companies that are doing anything to, uh, you know, to, to help around the world. And the idea is actually trying to measure impact to quantify it and, and not just, you know, have it be some ooey gooey, um, uh, you know, uh, up in the air kind of number to actually say, um, we're investing in, in companies who are on the ground doing things. Um, and, and we have this tool that can quantify how much an impact it's having. So, you know, I think there's that. And, and then, you know, especially given, given current conditions, I think it's valuable to, to think about how somebody like Ashton Kutcher got into investing in all these startups. And we think about it now, these high flying, companies from Uber to Airbnb and Spotify and you name it. Um, but th these were not sexy names, uh, back in, you know, 2009, 2010, when he was starting to invest, we were just coming out of the last great recession 
and um, people had been burned um, by tech and, you know, they were still kind of smarting from the, the late nineties dot com bust. And then, you know, the great recession came along and, you know, there really wasn't anybody from Hollywood going up or from the music industry going up and trying to invest in, in these companies. And, um, you know, Ashton Kutcher was in there at a time when it wasn't sexy. And I think that's what helped get him a lot of credibility with the, uh, you know, startup set and, you know, ended up paying tremendous dividends for him down the line. So, you know, it's kind of like a, a silver lining of when you look back in history um, at some of the darkest times, it's, it's when, you know, the, the people who are going to be doing well in the next decade are, are going around and they're most active, um, you know, trying to, trying to find the, the, the diamonds in, in the rough there. You interview a lot of rather famous people. Do you have a different approach to doing that? as compared to someone who isn't quite famous? Well, you know, I mean, uh, I think the, the main thing to remember, you know, with these interviews is that no matter how famous somebody is, that they're just another human and they are rarely treated as such. And so, you know, it's, um, at some point you, you kind of become immune to it, but you can see it hitting other people. So, you know, if I'm walking around interviewing somebody or having dinner or getting out of the car with somebody, you know, you see the reactions on, on, on people's faces. And it's like, uh, I mean, it's like they've seen a, like a space alien. <laughs> and, um, you know, I mean, the, the way they, the way they interact, they, they, you know, there's just, there's a lot of, it's, it can be kind of claustrophobia inducing. It's like very, sometimes it can be very grabby. It can be like very, in your face, get me, get a picture. Let me sign this. Let me touch you all this stuff. And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of these characters just, you know, it's exhausting for them. And, um, it's not often that, that people kind of talk to them as though they're people. So I think to whatever extent, you know, it's possible to do that. It's, um, it's refreshing. And I think, you know, I think whoever you're interviewing, the more you make it seem like just a regular conversation uh, between two human beings, um, the more relaxed everybody is and, and the more honest the conversation is and the more enlightening it is. Given the situation that we're in now, if you were to look in your crystal ball, what do you see changing going forward? I'm talking mostly in the music business now. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, right now we've hit pause on, on all live uh, all events and uh, clearly that's a, a huge problem because for most acts um, big and small that's you know huge center of, of income and the whole argument about streaming was you know you get your you get your music out there um, through these services and it, it's it you know you don't get paid a ton but it, it serves as a sort of advertising and almost like radio that, that you can go out and, and, and play gigs well now you can't so um you know, one of the things that, that I've been looking at a lot that's starting to, to come back are, uh, you know, live streaming concerts. Um, I wrote a story about a company by the name of Stage It back in 2012, and it was supposed to be the next big thing. This guy, Evan Lowenstein from Evan and Jerome, um, they did the song Crazy for This Girl back in 2000. And um, so, you know, they, they put he created this company, he raised three and a half million dollars from Jimmy Buffett and Sean Parker and all these folks. And, um, but then it never really took off. And, um, I think what happened was 
you know, it just, if you're doing a concert, if you're live streaming a show, you're still spending the time and maybe you're not traveling, but you're still spending the time and you're playing and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're putting yourself out there. So, you know, I think the most they ever grossed in, in a single show on stage, it was, was close to a hundred thousand dollars. But, you know, if you're an arena act, you're doing 10 times that easy. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's hard to, to, to have the same sort of scale, especially for, for, for bigger artists. Um, and it's, you know, it's also, it's not, uh, it's not like where when you tour and you're going to different cities and, and people are coming cause they can't, they didn't get to see you in the last place. It's like, if you're streaming, um, the show, you know, well, maybe you missed it last night, but it, it's not like you can really do a streaming tour, um, in the same way. So there were a lot of one-off performers and, you know, and, and the company didn't really go anywhere. And, and Evan told me he stopped funding it in 2015, just kind of scraping by. He said, he, he said he, um, he pulled the oars in and the company was just floating. And, uh, as, as recently as this past year, uh, the end of last year, he said he thought that the only thing that could save his company was global warming because acts like Coldplay would say, Oh, I'm not going to tour anymore. I'm just going to do stage at shows. Um, and that didn't really happen. But, um, but, but really, um, you know, in the wake of the, the coronavirus epidemic, um, pandemic, I should say, you know, acts have suddenly been heading over to, to stage it. And, and of course to other live streaming outlets, um, you know, or even just going on YouTube live or, or Facebook or Twitter or whatever, uh, there, there are a million ways to do it. So, you know, I think companies like stage it that, uh, that that have kind of like an integrated tip jar stuff like that um are 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 definitely you know certainly in the meantime uh a place where you're going to see a lot of artists go but you know i think now is a really great time to to be kind of reflecting and creating um because we can't go on like forever and and i think that um at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll start to get back to normal. And the artists that are really going to succeed are the ones who, who took the time to, you know, to just hole up and, and write a bunch and, and, and start, you know, creating great stuff. And, you know, the world will be ready to hear it um, when, when we all get back to normal and, you know, or even the world will be ready to hear it um, when we're all hunkered down and, you know, uh, hanging out inside. So, um, I, I think that, uh, you know, in a, in a strange way, it's maybe flipping the paradigm back toward recorded music again, um, you know, as a sort of an engine for, uh, for, for the music industry. Yeah. The only problem is, I don't know if you saw, but Amazon has suspended the online sales of CDs and vinyl as well, which that might put the nail in the coffin on both of those at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky. It's tricky for sure. And, um, I guess with streaming, of course, it, you, you gotta have a pretty big stream for it to really start to impact you. But, you know, some of the artists I've been talking to over this period of time really emphasize the importance of the super fans. And, um, you know, I think especially for, you know, what I like to call the, the vast middle class of musicians, um, super fans have been, have been really at the, at the core of, 
you know, how they make a living and, you know, what can you do to entertain those super fans? Um, you know, it, I think with things like live streaming, it's not so much about how many people can you get to pay to show up and tip you. Uh, it's not about quality, quantity. It's about quality. Like, can you, you might do better. Um, you know, you might find a uh, hundred people willing to give you, you know, I don't know. I mean, 20 bucks each, if you're going to, if you're having a really intimate live stream where you can answer individual questions and, and, um, play requests and stuff like that. Um, you know, versus if you have a thousand people, uh, you know, paying you a couple of bucks to just kind of tune in and, and watch something because, you know, if, if you're just tuning into something that's not really personalized, well, then you might as well just go on YouTube and watch some, you know, archive archival footage of a concert. So, the yeah, I think it's when you can personalize to to your core fans, your super fans. Um, you know, that's I think that's that should be a great area of focus, and um, you know, like those are going to be the ones who sustain you through the through the tough times. Last question, Zach. You have a different perspective, I think, given the environment that you swim in because most of the time I ask this question of musicians and people in the music business and they have a different perspective than I think what you'll have. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Uh, I would take it back to Jay-Z. Although he didn't tell me this, the only thing he really told me was, that book was horrible. That was his review of my book. Um, but but, um, but he, he says that, you know, he's, he's said this before and, um, in interviews and, and on, uh, you know, in, in lyrics, but he says a loss and a loss, it's a lesson. Whatever you're going through um, in your life, in your business, the odds are that there's something that you can get out of it that you can learn. And, um, you know, it, it seems to me that, that we're in a period where there's a lot to be learned and a lot of time to learn it. So, you know, that, I think that to me is the thing that has, has stuck with me and, you know, it, it's a, it's kind of a comforting thing to, to lean back on when you're sitting there wondering how the hell everything is going to turn out and, um, you know, gives a little bit of hope for the future. You can find out more about Zach and his great books at zogreenberg.com. That's Z-O-Greenberg, G-R-E-E-N-B-U-R-G, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyointercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyointercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.